Episode number 20 of the Media Narrative Podcast, a show featuring media makers, their stories, and their process. I'm Rob Hoschild. Today's guest is Hillary Wright. I'm about empowering people to understand their amazingly versatile, phenomenal body that has incredibly forgiving capacity if you just learn how to work with it as opposed to against it. Hillary Wright is an author and dietitian with more than two decades of counseling people on nutrition and lifestyle change. Her most recent book is The Pre-Diabetes Diet Plan. She's the director for nutrition counseling for the Domar Center for Mind-Body Health and a senior nutritionist at the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, both in the Boston area. Hillary and I also went to college together as undergrads way, way back in the day, and I've wanted to have her as a guest on the show for a while. This episode is brought to you in partnership with Quizella. Test your knowledge of words with one question per day delivered to your inbox. Q-U-I-Z-Z-E-L-L-A, Quizella.com. In a moment, we'll sit down with Hillary Wright. She'll talk about how growing up with two brothers who had diabetes helped inspire her career in nutrition. She'll drop lots of easy-to-digest knowledge, sorry for that pun, for people looking to improve their diet. And she'll tell us how she managed to write two books while raising three sons. Hillary Wright, thank you so much for being on the show. I couldn't be happier to sit here with you for a while. It's just enough reward for me. It's always good <laughs> to get together with an old friend. We go way back. Mm -hmm. uh, we went to UMass Amherst together. We were even housemates at one point on Belchertown Road. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, one of the things I remember from those days um, was that you were a science major and all of the science majors seemed to work so damn hard and I felt like a goofball in comparison to the rest of you. Um, and that sort of played out because in a life that's been very busy where you've been married and have had kids, you've uh, three kids, you've put books out and things like that. Mm -hmm. And I'm looking forward to talking about all this stuff uh, with you today. Mm -hmm. Where I want to start with uh, is to talk about the books and mainly the one that's more recent that came out in 2013. But the first book was called what? The PCOS Diet Plan. And PCOS stands for... So the subtitle to the book is A Natural Approach to Health for Women with Polycystic Ovary Syndrome, which is a, it's actually the most common hormonal condition in women that is mainly responsible for infertility related to not ovulating regularly. Right. So it sounds really technical and clinical, but it's actually a huge problem. And a lot of women are affected and, by it. Well, you know, estimates are anywhere from 10 to 18% of all women are affected by this condition. Wow. And when I first started seeing women with PCOS, it was, I remember it was February 2000, because I'd just gotten back from maternity leave uh, after having my third son, and a fertility doc who I had a relationship with in the medical practice I was working at part-time at the time, she said, I want you to start seeing my women with PCOS, and I was like, okay, you know, I was always, that's part of my personality, I always say yes first, right? and then I figure out, <laughs> how, you know, what is that? You know, how do I, you know, what do I make of that? I've never heard of that condition. So I did a deep dive into it and realized that actually diet and lifestyle is the primary management of that condition. And a common thread in that condition in most women is insulin resistance. Mm -hmm. So I thought, well, I know a lot about insulin resistance because I'm a dietitian who's been treating people with type 2 diabetes 
you know, at that point for a couple decades. And I know how to manage that. So I just need to find how to connect the dots between that and the hormonal shifts that not only raise their risk for infertility, but make them very high risk for diabetes. So like 50% of these women are estimated to be diabetic or pre-diabetic by the age of 40. Mm. So if you take the fertility thing right out of that, that right there is a really good reason for women to be diagnosed as early as possible and treated properly. And that it's, it's better than it was when I first started this. Uh, it still has a long way to go in terms of mm. identifying you know, girls and teenagers with this issue. Um, young women, like it's much better if a woman finds out about this earlier in her life when she has an opportunity to work on diet and lifestyle as opposed to being diagnosed when they realize they're having a fertility problem. Mm -hmm. So in Massachusetts, we have the oldest first-time moms in America, and it is very stressful. Is that right? I didn't know that. Yeah. What, what's the average age of a first-time mom? I think it's like 31 or 32 mm. You know, but that's the average across the country. So right. it's really common for me to get women in my practice who are in their mid to late 30s, early 40s. Mm -hmm. So as if fertility stuff wasn't stressful enough, now you find out you have this weird sounding condition that not only is probably wrecking your fertility, but is raising your risk for diabetes and heart disease and non-alcoholic fatty liver disease and raise rates of depression and you know, again, as if that wasn't enough, the hormonal conditions, you know, cause you to grow facial hair and, you know, unwanted hair in other parts of your body. That's really kind of body image soul crushing for right. young women um, can cause male pattern hair loss in the top of the head. You know, it's really a complex condition. So as a freelance writer, my I've always felt like my strength was I have a strong clinical background in nutrition because to your point. We had to study really hard in college yeah. because we had to do an internship, which you had to have, you know, good GPA to get into that. So, you know, it's pretty serious training, like right out of the gate. But I worked in clinical settings for about six years before I went to the outpatient world and just realized I think my strength is I can take complex things and convert them into terms that regular people can understand, which is ultimately what they need to be able to internalize what can I do to help myself. Mm -hmm. And the nutrition world is way too heavily about lose weight and exercise, lose weight and exercise. Well, those are easy words to say. So I, I always tell my clients endocrinology, which is what insulin resistance and PCOS and prediabetes and diabetes is all about. I like to think of them as our endocrine systems are like planets in a solar system. You know, your blood sugar regulation, your reproductive hormones, your thyroid, mm -hmm. your adrenal glands. These things are, you know, it's, they're the, some of the most miraculous aspects of the human body. But they're sort of supposed to orbit around each other, sometimes assist each other. In PCOS, they crash into each other. It's blood sugar regulation colliding with reproductive hormones. So what I really have found to be such a game changer when it comes to PCOS also helping people understand how they can avoid diabetes is let me help you understand how your body works mm -hmm. so that what I'm saying is something that you can process and internalize as opposed to just hearing, you know, I'm too fat, I'm too lazy, I'm too this, I'm too that, which is how so many people absorb nutrition messaging. It's really, I will say to people, yeah, with both PCOS and prediabetes, weight loss is the most powerful thing that you can do to control the prediabetes, manage your hormones, lower your risk of developing type 2 diabetes. Mm -hmm. But 
I find that if you dress the whole conversation up in a different outfit and talk about, let me tell you how your hormones work. Let's talk about what happens in your body after you eat a 12-inch sub, a bag of chips, and a Coke, as <laughs> opposed to like, <laughs> you know, something more moderate in carbohydrates. Right. Now I'm actually getting into their head and I'm teaching them how their body works. And that's different than just go on this diet, go on that diet. I mean, I've lived through them all, you know, mm -hmm. let's face it, I've been doing this since 1987 when fat was the devil. Mm -hmm. You know, now carbs have been in the hot seat for quite some time <laughs> and it just keeps getting more extreme to now we're in like keto land. Right. So again, I'm old, I've lived through all these things and I do believe that temporary change leads to temporary results. Right. So it keeps coming back to teaching people why I believe that's true. So let me help mm. you understand your body. You know, it's so interesting, the connection between these two books, diabetes and insulin seem to be a big connection between the two, the PCOS book and the book that came out five years ago, the pre-diabetes diet plan. But I wanted to ask you about your own family experience with diabetes and what role that played mm -hmm. in you getting not only interested in this particular subject, but your whole career whole as career. a nutrition expert mm -hmm. and dietitian. Well, it's interesting because I actually started out as an animal technology major because, you oh. know, as you know, back in the day when we went to college, you know, if you turned, you know, whatever the age is on the calendar year, you went to college. Right. I was really young when I went to college because yep. I was a fall baby. Mm -hmm. And I thought, I like science and I like animals. I was riding horses as I had done since I was younger. I'm going to be an animal technology major. And then after a year of that, I was getting straight A's. I wasn't even working that hard. And I thought, hmm, perhaps I should raise the bar. So I changed my major to general science and then transferred to UMass where you and I met mm -hmm. to be a nutrition major. And all the way, the while I was like, mm, I like healthcare. I don't know that I want to be touching people a whole lot. <laughs> <laughs> I hear you. I did go to Simmons and have an interview around the nursing program. I'm like, interesting, but mm, I don't think so. But my mother kept saying to me, what about nutrition? Because I have five brothers and sisters and two of my brothers are type one, have type one diabetes and have had it since they were... Um, seven and 11 years old. Mm -hmm. So, and both of my brothers are now in their uh, ones in there. The one who was 11 is in his late forties. The one who's was seven is in his early fifties. And both of them are still in good health. Mm -hmm. And much of that, I think we all attribute to my parents' ability. You know, my dad is a dentist. My mom, you know, was college educated person, you know, went to art school, but smart person, great cook. And she had to learn back in the seventies how to cook healthfully for two little kids with diabetes. I also have many family members with type 2 diabetes. So my mother developed type 2 diabetes later in life. She's the best controlled person with type 2 diabetes I think I've ever met. Hmm. But she, at that time, she actually said to me, you really need to read Jane Brody's book. So Jane Brody writes for the New York Times. And I think it was just called like the food, good food nutrition book or something. And I read the book and I'm like, oh, it's interesting. So I transferred to UMass and became a nutrition major. But it really wasn't until I even got out of undergrad that I really understood what that was all about. So having two brothers with that condition, did that, was that scary at all? What was that like in your family to have them have that condition? You know, they were diagnosed so young right. that I don't ever feel like it was scary. It's just how our family was. Right. And in some ways, it's easier to teach a young dog new tricks um, and other, and it's it's pretty evident that some people with type one diabetes appear to be more prone to the complications of it, regardless of how much effort they put into it. So I do consider us very lucky mm -hmm. that they've remained healthy. 
and that we live in the Boston area where they had access, you know, they went to Children's Hospital in Boston. It's the highest rated children's hospital in the country. Right. Where my mother first met this dietitian back in the 70s who she said made like a huge difference in her mm-hmm. ability to feel like she could handle this thing. And I'm it, sure she was terrified. You know, oh, you're yeah. shooting insulin into your child who is then going to run around and, and be in the world without you by their side all the time. I mean, right. I, I, you know, I don't know what that was. I can't imagine what that was like for her. Oh, it had to have been hard when they were so young. And, you know, I, I think my grandmother had diabetes and a lot of people know somebody who has diabetes. And I think... I could be wrong, but it seems like there's a perception that it's a very manageable condition and a lot of people live their whole lives with it and don't seem to show um, ill effects. But part of what you seem to be doing in this book is saying that if you ignore it to the point where your diet gets really bad or where you never exercise, then you might be getting into some serious trouble. So I wonder if you could just sort of clarify that part of it. What are some of the hazards of diabetes if the... um, you know, if if you don't really take care of yourself. The thing about type 2 diabetes, which is what this book is oriented around prevention of, is that up until like in, in my our grandparents' generation, even our parents' generation, unless somebody was really proactive about their health, they didn't start screening people for diabetes until they got like old, mm-hmm. which back then would be like... 60. Right. <laughs> Which I object, you know. Right. Well, you did call yourself old earlier, but I don't think you are. You're <laughs> well, I'm not quite there, but no. definitely the ceiling, I think, is rising <laughs> in terms of people's perception of what old is. Yeah. So people were often diagnosed at that time with diabetes when they'd been probably walking around with it for 10 or 15 years. They then, then you know, scientists and physicians became aware that, you know, this is a thing that occurs on a spectrum. So everybody with type 2 diabetes has a period of years generally where their blood sugars are starting to bump up, but they're not high enough to call diabetes. That's what prediabetes is. But everybody with prediabetes has years prior to that where they have this insulin resistance that is in the early stages and there's no easy tests to tease it out at that stage. There's risk factors, mm-hmm. you know, having a body mass index over 30, uh, being sedentary, having family members with type 2 diabetes, but it's a huge it's a huge misconception that if there's no diabetes in your family, you won't get it because our lifestyle is more diabetes-inducing than it was for previous generations, so people are actually getting it younger. Mm. Sadly, even in childhood, we're in instances seeing type 2 diabetes. So we realize that insulin resistance occurs on a spectrum, and the earlier on that you intervene – the lower the likelihood is you'll have complications. Mm-hmm. So the major complications of full-blown diabetes are heart disease. Um, diabetes is what we call a pro-inflammatory condition. So people hear a lot about inflammation, anti-inflammatory diets. You know, eat seafood. It has omega threes. Those are anti-inflammatory. Diabetes is a pro-inflammatory condition. It it's not good for your arteries to have a lot of sugar floating around, which is why sixty-five percent of the time people with diabetes die of heart disease. So the pro-inflammatory nature of the high blood sugar encourages the cholesterol buildup in their Mm -hmm. arteries. Type 2 diabetes is actually a risk factor for uh, cancer as well. You know, I work part-time at the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute in Boston. Insulin resistance is a pro-inflammatory but also an anabolic condition. Insulin, Mm -hmm. which is needed to regulate your blood sugar, makes cells grow whether they're good or bad. So there are a number of cancers that there are higher risks for in people with type 2 diabetes. 
uh, people are f- familiar with the blindness or the retinopathy that mm-hmm. can occur, neuropathy, which is just a burning in your hands and your feet, peripheral vascular disease, which can lead to amputations, which people, which people have often seen in people with diabetes, mm-hmm. higher rates of cognitive problems. It's not good for your brain to have too much sugar floating around. So what we realize now with much greater clarity is that diabetes, if, it's, if this insulin resistance is diagnosed early in the pre-diabetes phase, you can intervene and cure it. So people, mm-hmm. it kind of drives me nuts when I read stuff about such and such did this thing and they cured their diabetes. You can't cure diabetes. You can control it, work with it like a handicap. Mm-hmm. It's very possible to reverse pre-diabetes and never become diabetic if you embrace diet and lifestyle, even very moderate weight loss early in the game. Even better is to see the writing on the wall, you know, in the pre-pre-diabetes phase and say, you know, my health, my weight is at an unhealthy level. And I think it's important for people to realize the diabetes prevention program, which I talk about a lot in my book, found that losing as little as 7% of your weight can be enough to take somebody who's pre-diabetic and make them not go on to develop diabetes Mm -hmm. in the previous three years after the study was conducted. Um, and, and they found that those, you know, people who embrace early change, even if they don't stay perfect forever, long-term they still are at lower risk of developing type 2 diabetes if they don't completely regress to previous habits and behaviors. Mm-hmm. So this is about, this is the, probably our country's most important place to intervene early and not just accept that diabetes is a part of getting old. Um, and, you know, that's that's why I'm so enthusiastic about the pre-diabetes thing, because since this book has come out, I've, ha- I've had people email me from all over the place mm. thanking me for writing this book. Like, thank you. Now I get it. It's not just eat less, exercise more. There's There's a lot more to be understood. And it's so humbling to me to think that somebody would read my book and then take the time to find me online and find my email and write me a paragraph or two. Like that's like stunning to me, but it's such good soul enriching work. It's Mm -hmm. like no place I'd rather be than doing this. Well, this is a, how any entrepreneur or author or creator of anything gets successful. It's by understanding what is needed in our society and presenting it in a really, uh, well-made way. And that's clearly what you've been doing with this and your work in general. It occurs to me that I might not have asked you to give a really simple definition of diabetes yet. So why don't you do that? Okay. Maybe the best thing to do is to talk about insulin resistance Mm -hmm. because that manifests as different things besides just diabetes. Okay. So then what the heck is insulin? Okay. So <laughs> when we eat, so that the, the simple explanation, when you eat carbohydrates, about an hour later, they show up in your blood as sugar or glucose. How much shows up in your blood depends upon how much did you eat. So they're in this, you know, the 12-inch sub, the bag of chips and a Coke is going to mm-hmm. dump a lot of sugar into your blood. If you have, you know, some stir fry chicken vegetables and, a, you know, a modest amount of brown rice or something. It's not going so high. So it's you know, even like a turkey sandwich on whole wheat bread. It's not going to go anywhere near as high. The quantity matters though, because when you eat your, you know, you, you eat your carbs, your blood sugars rise, regardless of how high your blood sugar goes an hour later, your body's pretty determined to get it down to normal within two hours because our body knows a, the cells in our body need that sugar as fuel. Our brain being the biggest consumer of glucose burns twice the glucose of any other tissue in our body, which is why if we go too long without eating, we get hangry (laughs) and and mean and moody and 
shaky sometimes. Because our brain is pissed off. Because our brain is pissed off because it's underfueled and you're not driving the car properly. <laughs> so I always say, like, your brain will let you stay in the driver's seat to make food choices as long as you're being proactive and consistent about it. But as soon as you go too long without eating or do some of these, like, super low-carb diets and your brain gets deprived, your brain will throw you in the trunk, grab the steering wheel, and say, go eat some carbs. Right. It's like your primitive cave girl, you know, a cave guy says... Go kill an antelope and eat the whole thing. Right. There's a sense of urgency about it. Mm -hmm. So anyway, our body knows the fuel piece of this is important, but our boss, body also knows it's not good to have too much sugar in your blood. It's damaging. It's pro-inflammatory. Mm -hmm. So your body needs to move that glucose out of your blood and into your cells to accomplish that, to get, it, get the blood sugars back down to baseline by two hours. It's not a passive process, though. It needs an assist from this hormone called insulin. So many people have heard of insulin if like their grandmother, you know, took insulin for diabetes. Our pancreas makes insulin for us internally. So your pancreas, you know, hangs off your intestines, you know, right under your stomach, really close to all that glucose gets dumped into your blood. Mm -hmm. So after your blood sugars rise, your pancreas is checking your blood sugar to see how much insulin do I need to secrete out into this body to run around and unlock these millions of cells so the sugar can move out of the blood and into the cells. So in a perfect world, our cells would be very receptive to that, and the pancreas would secrete out, you know, round one of insulin. Mm -hmm. In insulin resistance, the receptors on these cells, so if, if you think of insulin like a key, on every cell in our body, we have hundreds of these things called insulin receptors. They're like keyholes. All the insulin has to do is find one of these receptors, connect with it like a lock and a key, and unlock the cell. In somebody who has some degree of insulin resistance. So again, it occurs on a continuum from very, very, very early on subclinical, no easy tests for it, progresses through to prediabetes and then on to di type 2 diabetes if it goes unchecked. Mm -hmm. In insulin resistance, the insulin's trying to unlock the cell, but the cell is numb to the action of the insulin. So it's like, and I, I like to use associations that people can visualize. Mm -hmm. So I'll say, you know, have you ever had a key that looks like the right key to a lock? You know, it'll go in, but it won't turn. Mm -hmm. If the pancreas thinks it's secreted enough insulin to unlock all your cells and sweep the sugar out, but then it rechecks and finds that your blood sugar is still too high, what do you think your pancreas is going to do? Throw more insulin out into right. your blood. Yeah. So in the early pre-prediabetes phase, your pancreas is youthful and energetic enough to just make more insulin. By the time somebody starts to show pre-diabetic type blood sugar bumps, so again, not high enough to be called type 2 diabetes, but not normal, your pancreas is trying to, is starting to say, you know, call uncle. I can't yeah. do this anymore. I'm working too hard. And what's actually happening is the cells that make insulin in your pancreas are dying. Mm. So that we now realize because of that, even in the pre-diabetes phase, some of those complications I talked about of type 2 diabetes they do start to occur potentially subclinically in the pre-diabetes phase, even if somebody's not yet a type 2, a person with type 2 diabetes. Mm -hmm. So the, the, my book is oriented towards helping people understand how your body processes carbohydrates. So the, the solution is not, okay, I just heard her say carbs are bad. Mm -hmm. That's not what I'm saying. Right. I just already said your whole body needs carbohydrates as fuel and your brain really needs them. Right. So- we tend to be in a culture of extremes. So if, if way too much chunky carbohydrate is not a good idea, we can agree on that. Mm. Too little carbohydrate is not sustainable and it's not healthy. Mm. And nobody can convince me of otherwise. I, 
I dare anybody to go toe-to-toe with me and tell me that you can live without carbs. So you're not a fan of the ketogenic diets and all that kind of thing? Only in, only if you have um, seizures that are so bad that the medications mm-hmm. aren't working for you. There's clear clinical indications for that. But no, I've seen too much temporary change leading to temporary results. And mm-hmm. I see keto, you know, A, as something that people with potential eating disorders could really embrace mm-hmm. um, in an unhealthy way. I've again I you know this this keto and Atkins are not exactly the same but they mm. are the same in that they both severely restrict carbohydrates in an unsustainable way and you know I also I like food I mean come on you know Yes, I've had many meals with you. And, you know, that's one of the things, like, like you've always talked about issues like this the, the 35 years I've known you, and yet you eat like a normal person. I don't see you with a plate with just, like, three peas and no. a piece of fish, and that's all you ever have at every meal, you know? No. I mean, there is a middle ground here. Right. So that's what I'm trying to help people appreciate is the middle ground and to just let go of the days or the, the, the times that don't go so great and just like regroup to what you think is going to be good for you. Mm-hmm. But again, where this Z curve of failure, cu- you know, culture, you're either in or you're out. Right. And I just, you know, I, I spend more time trying to get people to, you know, feel, forgive themselves what they feel are past transgressions. Yes. Yeah. You are <laughs> you know. a human being. Everyone makes mistakes <laughs> exactly. or eats that pizza. I mean, it's, you know, it's just sad. That yeah. food is so demonized. It's true. But, you know, there is some discomfort that goes along with not being able to eat everything that we want. Yeah. But if people even understand, you know, that like the the primary approach that I describe in my book is what's called a balanced plate. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's a plate. Instead of half of it, though, being covered with a big piece of steak or a big pile of rice, half of it ideally would be covered with non-starchy vegetables. Mm-hmm. And about 25% would be protein. About 25% would be some sort of a healthful Form of carbohydrate, right. most of the time, you know, applying that 80-20 approach. Yep. And then, you, you you know, most people can appreciate the Mediterranean diet and those healthy fats. And, you know, people like eating nuts and avocados and things. So that yeah. kind of takes care of itself. But, you know, I'm, I'm all about positive messaging and empowering mm-hmm. people, not like browbeating them into right. submission <laughs> over their pre-diabetes. Or their, I don't like scaring people. You, you will know? if you have to. I, no. I will in, in a... In a nurturing way. There you go. Uh, have I ever told you about my gruel recipe? Have we I ever talked so. about that? I don't think so. It's, uh, it is sort of related to what you're saying because I like to eat a pint of ice cream. I like to eat pizza. I like to drink beer. Uh, but I've developed this stuff that I call gruel, which is like an old version of porridge that they ate in like medieval times or something mm-hmm. like that. And it's a combination of of granola and flax meal, almond butter, sometimes throw in some dried fruit, a little bit of almond milk and mix it up. And if I throw in jelly, it's almost like dessert. Mm. And I have found this to be a way of like getting something that sticks to my ribs, has a little bit of sweetness, but yet because of that Lots of protein and fiber and and healthy fats. Bravo, Rob. Thanks, You must have absorbed a lot (laughs) living in the house with me. Yes, I think that's what it was. Yeah, (laughs) definitely. Because we ate so healthy back in those days. I don't even remember eating in college. In fact, I recently had this conversation with my husband, Tony, who, you know, you also know well. Yes. What did we do for food in college? I don't even remember. All I remember is it wasn't an obsession. And that, I think, was a good thing. That's true. Uh, Well, if I remember, Tony, a wonderful man, your husband, who was my freshman floor mate and was the connection between you and me back in those days when you guys started dating, he worked at a pizza place in Amherst. So I remember uh, certainly eating a lot of pizza. So it wasn't like off the radar. Uh, One thing you mentioned in response to the question about defining diabetes was cavemen and cave women. 
And you, in this book, talk about the fact that part of the reason why diabetes is so big is because our bodies were built in one particular way as cave dwellers, like you described the killing of the antelope. How is it that modern life has made us more disposed to diseases like this? And, you know, how, how were things, how have things changed since then to make it that way? You know, obviously we don't live like the cave dwellers Mm -hmm. did. So why is the way we're living now such a problem for these kinds of illnesses? So insulin resistance is one of numerous conditions that we would consider genetic mismatch conditions. So insulin resistance evolved to actually help human beings survive droughts and famines. Mm. So it's a self-preserving genetic tendency. So the simple, without getting too technical, explanation of that is if you are a cave person and we acknowledge, you know, your brain is the most important organ in the body, your brain uses a lot of glucose. We talked about that. So human evolution favored always feed the brain first because it's the most important organ system. If you went through a drought or a famine and the food supply was drying up and human beings throughout history relied very heavily on plant sources of food, which are carbs, carbohydrates. Mm -hmm. If during conditions of physiologic stress, which risk of starving to death was the major threat to human existence throughout most of history, very stressful to the body. Mm -hmm. If every time you did manage to forage for some carbohydrates, they immediately got sucked up by your muscles, which are the uh, volume-wise the biggest consumers of glucose because we have a lot of muscles. If your muscles sucked up all the glucose, then your central nervous system wouldn't get its fair share, and that would potentially threaten your survival. So insulin resistance, what I described before of you know the insulin trying to unlock the cell, mm-hmm. is largely driven by what's going on in your muscles, you know, also in other organ systems. But if during droughts and famines, muscles are considered big hogs of glucose, it favored survival to make the muscles back off on how much glucose they use in an attempt to conserve Mm. glucose circulating around for the brain. And in order to make that happen, the insulin receptors on the muscles would become numb to the action of insulin. The interesting, really, I think it's, you know, again, you can tell I'm fascinated by the human body. That's actually what gestational or pregnancy-induced diabetes is. Mm. As the baby gets bigger towards the end of the pregnancy, the placenta secretes hormones to intentionally make the mother insulin resistant to try to preserve more glucose circulating in the blood to fuel this baby's great accelerated growth in that third trimester. But if a woman goes into a pregnancy and she's already somewhat insulin resistant because of excess weight, PCOS, prediabetes, um, then she's going to be higher risk for gestational diabetes. So it's all these these things that the body evolved to do to protect us that it's that are just really backfiring in this environment that we live in because evolution is extremely slow. It takes, you know, thousands of years for your body to to change. Mm-hmm. Like it took a long time for humans to stop having tails. <laughs> you know? Like I heard the next thing to go is gonna be wisdom teeth. You know, oh, some people be okay. are yeah, I know. I had to have mine taken out. Um, sometimes yeah. people are now born without them. You mm-hmm. know, the jaw shape changed, but the same number of teeth coming in, and they often create problems. So mm. insulin resistance evolved to help people survive, but now, you know, in response to physiologic stress. But now physiologic stress is much more, in our contemporary world, excess weight, sedentary lifestyle, um, overexposure to too much processed food that our mm-hmm. body was not 
did not was not designed to tolerate. I mean, quite frankly, it's really toxic to mm-hmm. the human body to flood it with processed sugar and refined carbohydrates. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, insulin, again, if you were a cave person, it was awesome. You know, the people who are now developing diabetes, I mean, all of us actually, we're the descendants of the fittest. Mm-hmm. So we've all heard, we've heard the survival of the fittest. Yep. The fittest people survive the droughts and famines. So, but the, the, the thing that adds a layer of complexity, and again, I find that helping people understand this makes sense. Insulin is a hormone. It has a long job description. The one I've described is its main job, you know, sweep the sugar out of the blood and into the cells. But insulin is all about survival. Don't waste calories. Mm-hmm. So your insulin will try to shuttle as much glucose or sugar into your cells as they can take on, but there's limited capacity there. Mm. So the insulin will say, don't want to waste this. It will divert it and try to store some of it in these in your muscles and your liver in the form of this stuff called glycogen. Mm-hmm. Think of it like little sugar cubes that can be crumbled and thrown into your blood so you never get dangerously low blood sugary. This is why marathon runners carb load you know, mm-hmm. the day before they're trying to stock up their sugar cubes. But there's a finite capacity for our cells to take that on. So again, we're eating tremendous amounts of refined sugar and portions, just portions of carbohydrates, right. regardless of where they're coming from, that the, our normal mechanisms to clear it are getting overwhelmed. So in its capacity, again, leftover caveman capacity to don't waste calories, the, the body will, the insulin will take whatever glucose it still wants to get rid of, convert it into this stuff called triglycerides, which people have seen on like the bottom of their cholesterol right. report. Triglycerides are fat. And then what we'll do, it will direct those triglycerides to be stored in what's called your visceral adipose tissue, VAT fat, your gut. And this is around the middle. Mm -hmm. And this is not between your skin and your muscles. This is under your muscles around your organs, including around your liver, which is why we have this increased incidence of non-alcoholic fatty liver disease in people Mm -hmm. um, who are at risk of, or who have diabetes or at risk of diabetes. so in its capacity to do a good thing, what was good in the caveman days is backfiring and causing metabolic overload. And that, we fear, is likely to result in a reduced lifespan mm-hmm. over time when we have so much technology to keep people alive. It's a shame to be having so many people die prematurely from yeah. preventable disease. One thing we haven't talked about is just sort of your process for doing this work, writing these books. Like you said earlier, you had three kids and were working while you were getting these books out. So I'm wondering about your writing process, your creative process, putting all this together, and also productivity, like how you stay on task for getting this much done. Okay. What's your secret? So in a nutshell, and it's not a nutshell, but I'm trying <laughs> to nutshell it. So my goal once I started having children, so I have three sons. My goal was to be home more than I was away, but I had to have a part-time job for benefits for my family because my husband's self-employed. So one of the things, you know, my friend, uh, our mutual friend Liz Ward is a writer and has always been an amazing mentor to me. She started freelance writing a lot earlier than I did. She wrote the foreword on this book, I believe. She did write the foreword on this book. So I started, I said, you know what? I can write at at my kitchen table. I don't need to go out. I think I'm an okay writer, but I didn't have confidence. So because I was very active in my state nutrition association, I have a lot of contacts, knew a lot of people, including the director of the writing program at Tufts, mm-hmm. a woman named Jean Goldberg. I contacted her and I said, even though I'm not in the master's, master's degree program for writing, 
may I take, you know, the series of three writing classes. That's all oriented towards consumers, and that gave me confidence. The thing is, they kicked me out of the classes after the second class because they said, you're done. You don't need to learn anymore. Go and write. And, and actually, I got some very early opportunity from the Tufts Health and Nutrition Letter. Mm-hmm. So then I became a freelance writer. And in writing an article for the Tufts Health and Nutrition Letter on PCOS, the editor at that time, this amazing guy, Larry Lindner, said, you need to write a book. So my kids were really little at this point. I think my youngest son was two, mm-hmm. maybe. And he recommended a book on how to write a book proposal by Michael Larson. I got the book. I found it most valuable for the sample um, book proposals in the back. Mm-hmm. Took me a year to write a book proposal. Then I had to find an agent, which was a total blur. But the, you know, one thing I always remember people said, if you want to find an agent, you have to find one in the subject matter that you're interested in. Go find books on that subject matter and look in the acknowledgments and see who they credit. Right. Because they always say, I want to thank my agent, blah, mm-hmm. blah, blah. So I actually was referred to my agent, Judith Riven. We've been together now for 10 years, probably, by another agent who agreed to take me on, except she was about to have a baby. And so you, it's just networking, networking, talking to people. Mm-hmm. And this was prior to like social media. I mean, it was took more effort to kind of reach out. You had to call people. Oh, God. Phone calls. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> talking to human beings, oh. and pitching yourself. <laughs> so anyway, um, I wrote the proposal. Judith tried to sell it. And this was probably around 2006. Got a lot of interest in my tone and my writing style, but they said, PCOS, who knows what that is? It's too niche. We're, we're too afraid to take a dive in this. Mm. I set it aside. And in the meantime, I improved my platform as a writer in the subject because I established a private, private practice at Boston IVF, which is one of the biggest fertility treatments practices in the United States. Mm-hmm. So then I had a better platform, which made me more attractive to publishers. And after two years, I decided to try it again. At that point, niche was good because the internet had taken off more. PCOS, that's what people look for. They look for PCOS, polycystic ovary syndrome. I had two publishers interested in my work, signed a deal with one that gave me a slightly higher um, advance. And at that point, they gave me 50% up front, which they never do. They actually didn't even generally do it then. For some reason, they gave me 50% up front, which uh, was helpful when like three months later, they decided to dissolve all their health books and they asked me for the advance back. Oh, God. Which my agent and my lawyer, I have loads of lawyers in my family, God love them all, (laughs) said, no, you're not the one who violated the contract. So I got to keep the 50%. But the advantage to having an agent is the agent had contacted 10 Speed, which was the other publisher that was interested in my work before she even spoke to me and said, have no fear, they're still interested. Oh, wow. So I thought they'd smell blood in the water and lowball me. And they actually came back to me with the exact same deal. Mm. So I got to keep the 50% advance. I had to hire a lawyer, you know, her lawyer, the New York, the big New York lawyer to do a little bit of work for me. Started writing for uh, 10 Speed, which was then absorbed into Penguin Random House. So I've had a great experience with them. Uh, I finished that book in 2010. That book was about insulin resistance, PCOS, excuse Mm -hmm. me. Insulin resistance drives most cases of PCOS. I said, you know what? There's 82 million Americans with prediabetes. Mm. How about if I repackage this information from that angle, which is what I did, and that book came out in 2013 and continues to sell well. Mm-hmm. The uh, I've had a great experience with my editor and publicist people. And then I rewrote a uh, second edition of the PCOS Diet Plan came out last year in 2017. And right now I'm, I'm hopeful uh, to work on another project that is, has yet to be mentioned. 
or spoken of. You won't be saying anything about no. it today because I, I have some <laughs> thoughts, uh, but maybe I'll share that later. Yeah. Um, so, and what about the productivity piece then? Oh. You said you, write it, you wrote at the kitchen table. I mean, I wrote early in the morning. Mm-hmm. I'm not a night person. So like when I wrote the pre-diabetes the uh, diet plan, I have always had uh, one full day at home and one morning at home around my part-time job at Dana-Farber in my private practice. I would get up early and write. And when I wrote the PCOS diet plan, and the first one that came out, I actually would get up, go to a 5.45 a.m. yoga class <laughs> in the middle of the winter. It's still dark out. Yikes. Because I, I need to get my activity and my exercise in. That's part of my stress management process. Mm-hmm. Got to practice what you preach. Yep. Too. I'd go to yoga. I'd be out of there by 7.15. I'd come home. I'd take my kids to school. And then I would just spend all day on mm-hmm. Tuesday writing my book. So for me, it was like I needed to set aside time in the morning and you know, I don't. I don't have an office. I have a relatively small house, so mm-hmm. I would just clean my kitchen. I get to distracted by like things that are out of order. Clean my kitchen. Sit down. Uh, actually, what I did a lot um, because of the distractions of my house is I went to the library. Mm-hmm. So my town has a really nice library. And yep. and when I wrote the first book, they didn't have Wi-Fi, which was even better. <laughs> Oh, because right. No distraction. No, I find social media and the internet like humongously distracting, and it's worse. Oh, yeah. I, I find it much harder to deal with now. Mm-hmm. Though I still probably, uh, should I get an opportunity to write another book, would spend some time at the library because, mm-hmm. as you know, you you know you write to. Once you get into the zone, you can crank. Mm-hmm. But once you get out of the zone, it takes effort to get it's back over. to the zone. Yeah. So for me, it was you know literally booking the time in doing it in the morning, making sure I got my exercise so I wouldn't be sitting there writing thinking, you know, oh, I really should go to the gym. You yeah. know, like set the things that I needed to settle my focus and then just kind of sit down and crank. You know, one thing I wanted to ask you about was a story you told me recently when we were talking about the book. And it really connects with this thing you were saying earlier about people finding it valuable information and uh you you came across somebody who who liked the book so much that he took a step beyond what's that story so it's actually such a great story like it's like a publicist dream and it just dropped in my lap about three weeks ago i got a message through linkedin from a gentleman named phil and so he had been diagnosed with prediabetes and he tells me that his wife went online and bought my book uh, he read my book, and subsequently, he says, due to his enlightenment about what this was all about, went on to lose 150 pounds, Wow! normalized his blood sugar, and the reason he was contacting me is he wanted to know if he could purchase 100 copies of my book, <laughs> and if I would be so kind as to sign them, so that he can send them as holiday gifts to his network, his friends and his professional network, and wow. he works in the healthcare industry. Oh, my. You know, so oh, so of you course. said no, you know, no, thank you. <laughs> I said, please, you know, just tell me what you'd like me to write. Right, right. You know, he's like, just your name. I'm like, are you sure? You know, and um, it just, you know, this. I, I just have to tell you, as a health professional, as a writer, to have someone reach out and say your work meant that much to me mm. that I want to buy a hundred copies of your books and give them to a hundred of my closest people. Yeah. Um, and also, he's, he plans to blog, his January blog, which the timing couldn't be better because, of course, everybody's thinking about New Year's resolutions, which I have mixed feelings about. But, right. you know, new starts. Yep. He plans to blog about his experience with my book, and he's planning on giving some out at a conference uh, that, that I believe he's speaking at. 
next week. Right. So, you know, it just goes to show that like um, good deeds get rewarded mm-hmm. sometimes. Yeah. You know, and I mean, honestly, just, at this point in my life, I just, it's so important to me that my work is soul enriching good work. Mm-hmm. The money's nice for sure. Mm-hmm. However, it's really about, I'm so blessed. I end each day either at the cancer treatment place I work at, at the fertility clinic, or writing books that help people, feeling like what I do makes a difference in its own little way. You know, what could be better at this stage of life, really? So one last question, since we're just a few days away from Thanksgiving. Yeah. What advice do you have for people who are faced with these massive food options in a couple of days? How do they make good decisions? So this is what I say. If the only days that we had a problem with food were the 12 national holidays, we would not have any problems. Mm -hmm. I really don't care what you do on Thanksgiving. (laughs) What I care about is what happens the next day when you get up and you resume your life that you don't say, oh, I blew it on Thanksgiving. I was on my diet and I screwed up. And now you're sliding into the ditch. You know, every day is another opportunity to just regroup and get back into it. I would encourage people to notice how your body feels uh, when you eat too much food. Mm-hmm. You know, it's so funny when people say, oh, I'm so tired Thanksgiving night. It's all that tryptophan. It's like, right. you know what? I don't know about the tryptophan piece. All I know is when you eat a ton of food, your blood has to redistribute itself to your GI tract to pick up all that new, all those nutrients and shuttle them away. So that's why you feel bloated and disgusting. Um, <laughs> right. And that's also why you feel tired because the blood's going to come from someplace. Mm-hmm. So it kind of redirects your GI tract from your head and your limbs. And yes, you only, you know, you want to sit and watch Netflix that night. But again, you know, I would encourage people, of course, not not to eat so much that you feel sick to your stomach, but we've all been there. Yeah, It's so important to just not make a big deal out of it. Just get up the next day and regroup, for God's sake. There you go. There's your recommendation <laughs> for Thanksgiving. And I know your husband, Tony, is going to love that you mentioned the GI tract a couple of times before this, this interview ended. Uh, <laughs> where can people find out about you and your work, Hillary? So I have a website. HillaryWright.com. It's Hillary with two L's, like the same as Hillary Clinton. Um, and I have uh, Facebook pages, uh, fan pages, they're called, for both of my books. One is called Pre-Diabetes Diet Plan, and one, one is called PCOS Diet. I have videos online. I've done tons of interviews. If you just kind of Google Hillary Wright, nutritionist, um, you can buy my books on Amazon or any online retailer uh, sells them. Um yeah, there's not a lot of Hillary rights in the world, so I'm not no. that hard to find. Yeah. Really. Yeah. Okay. So there it is. All the information will be in the show notes. I should say Twitter. Can I say Twitter? Say Twitter. I, Love Twitter. Uh, at PCOS Diet <laughs> and Instagram, I am H Right R D. And you do seem quite active on the socials. I always feel like I'm failing. Yeah. But I keep trying. Yes. Well, uh, congrats on these books. Look forward to the next one. Uh, it's been great to get together with a fellow UMass alum and talk about the work. Go, Thanks, go you. Go you. Go you, Mass. One of these years, we're going to get back in the NCAA finals in basketball. That's what matters. Yes. Thanks, Hill. You're welcome. It's been great. Learn about her work at HillaryWright.com. As she just said, she's very active on Facebook and Twitter. So visit her website for links to those and her books and other content such as interviews and videos to take a deeper dive on any of this. You'll find plenty of links in the show notes for this episode. And check this out. We're going to have some quiz questions related to this podcast for all of you. That's coming next week. Thanks to a partnership between this podcast, The Media Narrative, 
and Quizella, which is a very fun and informative way to learn a new word every day. I do Quizella every morning through email. It takes less than a minute. It's a blast and it's quite humbling. Often I'm completely wrong. So go to Quizella.com, sign up and have a word challenge sent to your inbox every day. And we'll see just how well you're listening to this podcast, people. That's Quizella.com, Q-U-I-Z-Z-E-L-L-A.com. This episode was edited and mixed by Isaac Kotecki. Matt Jensen composed and recorded the theme music. Subscribe to The Media Narrative at themedianarrative.com. I'm Rob Hoschel. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.